Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Simone Kolisch mm -hmm. for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is February 14th, 2018, and this has been recorded at the CUNY Graduate Center. Mm -hmm. Happy ha Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's <laughs> How are you doing? Today? I'm doing well, thanks. It's a pleasure to do it with you in particular. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to hear about your life. Um, what's your first memory? My first memory is of my mother uh, letting go of me and me drowning in an ocean somewhere around the Balkan Sea. Uh, sees, you know, and um, feeling like I'm just gonna die. <laughs> That's my first memory of losing that connection to her and uh, feeling alone and lost, um, maybe around four or three or four years old. What was your mother like? <laughs> my mother uh, is a complicated individual and, and I have a complicated relationship to her. Um, she lives with me, so I can speak to you about what she's like because my childhood memories of her are limited. And um, I remember that she would tell me that norms of all sorts are very important to maintain. So whenever I would have a lot of questions as a child, she'd kind of always, um, instead of answering, say that that's because that's the norm and that's because that's our tradition. And it was a very blanket sort of statement. So. Um, I never got answers to certain things that I wanted to know about. And then I felt that, you know, she was there for me because she sacrificed a lot of her life to, like, make sure, like, I would live in a Russian village and I would want to learn the English language. And then she got another job so that I can have a private tutor in order to do that. So I knew education was important to my mother and that she would support my, like, you know, development um but then the next thing i remember is just when we would would be moved here to the united states and and she um was working hard and wasn't really there to process how emotional or drastic that is to just take a kid and move them across the world and and drop them into an entirely new country and so i felt alone again um and then i tried to come forward with some sort of um like childhood sexual abuse uh conversations and and what has been done to me by certain people and then I remember her saying uh, and this was the beginning of how we came to be apart <laughs> emotionally that um it didn't happen so she sort of continues to this day to sort of rewrite like my story as I try to tell it um and she was as an immigrant to the United States, really invested in making sure we follow the norms here too and learn the norms. And she would fake Thanksgiving dinner just to say we're American. She would fake a lot of things to this day just to appear to Americans as if we're also American. Um, and so she had a set of ideas about what that means. And, um, and so the norms continued regarding sexuality or gender or how to interact with people and family. Um, so I just remember learning all of her norms, which I guess isn't just they just sort of fit a lot of other people's norms. So sometimes I tell my students, you know, if I ask my mother something and I ask a bunch of you something, it gives me a good way of triangulating like where social norms are, you know, across a wide range of ages. Um, because if she dislikes it and you dislike it, then that's pretty clearly a deviant behavior or something. 
spoken like a sociologist. Well, sure, yes. <laughs> um, so where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in Azerbaijan, which was at the time a country um, that belonged to the USSR. And when the USSR collapsed, um, you know, that was pretty impactful for my parents. Uh, but also at that time, Azerbaijan and Armenia were having conflicts over a piece of land between the countries. And I'm 34 years old, and they continue to have that conflict to this day, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. You could Wikipedia it. And uh, that meant that people who were of Armenian descent, like me, I'm Russian-Armenian, had to leave the country drastically and, like, fast, because there were militia sort of kind of following down the block and, like, murdering people who were Armenian. And then in uh, Armenia, they were doing the same to people of Azerbaijani descent. Uh, and so it was sort of, you know, a tit-for-tat kind of thing. And so the first time I was moved was very suddenly. And I had to let go of this life-size doll I had. I had a wedding dress on. And it was my first, like, serious trauma because I had to let her go, too. <laughs> and then they they just kind of took us to Russia, which is where I lived. And then... Um, established roots there and went to school and was a happy child because of schooling which is how it's going to connect to why I'm forever in school now and then they sort of let me know that we're moving to the United States because we won the green card lottery and uh, the next day that's when we left again and I didn't get too much of a like a uh, warning so I ran away into the forest um, and uh, they found me and I thought this was gonna you know make like let me stay in Russia <laughs> and they found me and they took me and the next thing I knew I was in JFK uh, here in New York um, and now I forget what the question was how old were you when you moved 11 so when I showed up to JFK, I was 11, and I was relied on to translate everything because of the previously mentioned English lessons, but I learned British English instead of American English, and so um, there was a lot of misunderstanding because uh, I would use different words, you know, like for elevator, I would say flat or something, and, um, but, no, but I got us around the airport enough, you know, uh, at 11, and then became, um, you know, the main translator for the family uh, forever after that <laughs> and am to this day so do you want to pause the recording to eat no i will okay. eat that's, on the recording very good i think great. that's good i i want you to eat um what when you ran away to the forest what do you think your uh image of the united states was mm -hmm. yeah so i thought that, well, they said it's good to go to the United States because I could go to Disneyland. And I didn't know what Disneyland was, but we had some movies that we would see as children, mostly Commando <laughs> and um, and the one with Sylvester Stallone, Rambo, Rambo and stuff with Jean-Claude Van Damme. So, so uh, that didn't give me too much of a picture of what the United States was like. I just knew that I didn't want to leave my home and my friends behind and I just developed like a very new crush on my best friend this boy Maxim and it was a tragedy that I was leaving when I was finally starting to like come into my own <laughs> and that's all I just wanted to stay there because I thought my parents didn't understand what a loss that would be I didn't think anything of America other than 
it would take me away from my friends and my crush and I had very specific plans on becoming a doctor I knew which hospital and so this was just it was just you know um not in keeping with my strict schedule <laughs> at 11 years old <laughs> but when I did come here I remember being shocked by how many choices people had in soda and uh, soda was something that we can only have on New Year's as well as chocolate and when I went to grocery stores in Brooklyn I just couldn't believe that anyone can have chocolate anytime they wanted and it and it was affordable <laughs> and that there were so many different kinds of soda I thought and it was profound at the time I thought why would people need so many choices of a product you know I feel like that's wasteful and you know now here with my very Marxist um, stance I still agree with that kind of thing <laughs> what was the soda like in it was the same soda it was yeah. just imported yeah it was just so difficult to get you know either in Azerbaijan or in Russia because we were well in Azerbaijan probably easier but I but I just don't remember consuming it there because my parents were relatively well off there once they moved the first time they were not well off and so that's why it was only during new year's that we could get it but they would have to go to the big city next to the village uh, where it would uh, where they could obtain something like that yeah which is why it was not manageable i think the rest of the year what was life like for your family when you first moved to the united states i first moved to pennsylvania actually harrisburg pennsylvania and uh that's where our sponsor family lived and i thought my upbringing was going to be like a private school existence and um you know in a very elite environment and then my father had an injury and it forced us to move to brooklyn and it was a very different environment where i felt better because i didn't really get along with a lot of people in harrisburg <laughs> and so when i moved to brooklyn and i went to middle school as a sixth grader i was just i was just mad that i had to take to take a year over in russia i was finished with seventh grade here they said it's only based on the age of your birth i mean the, just the year of your birth and uh, and I said, but I'm very advanced, like you can't put me back. So I just, that's what, that, that was a concern. Um, I remember writing these really impressive um, nationalist uh, patriotic poems about Mother Russia, like calling it that in Russian. I still have books and books of this. Uh, and that's because I was actually, you know, brought up as, a, as, a, as an officially like communist kid. Um, we wore the little Lenin buttons. We, well, I didn't make it to eighth grade, which is where you start to have the red handkerchiefs around your neck, um, and you were called pioneers. Um, so the communist ranks, basically. Um, I didn't get to go through all of that. So I had a, a very nationalist agenda, writing that poetry about how Mother Russia would win everything and in every war and across the universe. Um, Got, had like a, a great sense of that kind of pride, um, and um, and I and I thought you know that that education was super important, and so I'm gonna excel at it, and no matter what happens, you know I'll just be a really good student, and you know and I ha I led a very lonely existence, um, but I wanted to be part of a friend group, and so um, became friends with people that I thought were cool, but were actually mean girls. And so I remember just bullying a lot of other people when I was in sixth grade in order to, you know, be cool. And I teach my kids and my students now to this day that that those 
actions are so important and so harmful um, to reflect on um, because you can't go back and apologize for something like that. So it's probably best to never bully or harass another person since you never know what impact you'll have on them. And I just wish I could come back to a couple of girls and just really apologize for being um, a little shit <laughs> in a sense. So so that was my first year here. And, and there was, like I said, another instance of sort of sexual molestation taking place from a, an older person uh, that was being ignored by my parents. And, um, and so I dealt with it privately. However, whatever, I never really dealt with it. Um, since the people who need to deal with it deny it happened, um, you can never really get closure around something like that. Uh, and my school experience was difficult because I was very poor and didn't have jeans. And if you didn't wear jeans at the time, it was just kind of like not a cool thing. And so they beat me up a lot in school and they made fun of my glasses you know and my brother had to take me to school and I hated that because he was very manipulative he was five years older and you know he was not interested in walking me and I just think he tortured me a lot um so that was the initial years and and I just remember that no one really processed anything for me which I think was necessary so I paid I paid close attention to that with my children now to process change you've brought up uh, this these incidents of child sexual mm-hmm. assault that you dealt with and mm-hmm. the denial from mm-hmm. from your parents. Is there more that you want to share about that? It's totally up to you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we come across just how common that sort of experience is in, in my interviewing my PhD participants, um, in my talking to my students, in talking to my friends. Um, you know, it's, I think, an incredibly common experience for people that are, you know, like assigned female at birth, but by no means just that group. Uh, certainly just, um, it's actually how I now think about uh, folks coming into womanhood um, pretty violently and without their permission uh, or coming into sexuality prior to their being ready, <laughs> like at ages that are not, um, that are not thinkable, really. Um, so, you know, I think I've processed it quite a bit, you know, since being 11 or 12 or 13, uh, and, um, and I can't confront one of the folks because he's passed, and, uh, did confront the other person, uh, a little bit, and, you know, like I said, along with my parents, he sort of said, like, that's not what happened, um, and so I, I let that go because I was much younger. I wouldn't now, but I have no interest whatsoever in confronting the person. I've basically moved on as much as you can from, from that sort of thing. And I don't think it shaped, but how could it not? But I don't think it shaped significantly my exploration or whatever. Um, I did feel fear and shame, and I, and I do get upset when I think to that little person, you know, who needed that validated so now I just pay attention to other people's experiences and validate it for them what, what would you say to to right like you? well it's good advice to talk to your younger self in order to heal but I would say well of course it happened and it's wrong and they will be punished and like we will leave this environment and it's not going to be tolerated you know just things that I don't think um many parents know how to state without like apology or question mark to their children just sort of uh you know categorically validate and just you know stop something and intervene and and whatever so that's the kind of parent 
um, I want to be and am. So I informed my parenting, you know, to this day. So you spent your teenage years in Brooklyn? That's right. Yeah, I had the best time. I keep thinking to high school because middle school was a mess, but I switched middle schools after being have, having a bad experience in that, in, in that other one initially, and then the second middle school I went to is where my son goes now, so it's really special. It's doubly special, but I, you know, became, I learned Italian and the violin and just, like, had all these other crushes and was Arista and Archon, you know, and um, part of service societies, and... Uh, things got better the more engaged I got with school and the less engaged I got with my family, uh, which was very painful. But, you know, the more I separated myself from their upbringing and their norms and the more I got into uh, things that people do, you know, like extracurricular activities, hobbies, you know, just just um, um, things people do for fun, the better my life got. And in high school, I was so active and I was... I was getting a special med side diploma and I was doing cancer research and I was choreographing and directing musicals every year and I was just like organizing other things. I was coming into my feminism. I think that was my first rhetorical move like into feminism because Bush was president and abortion was compromised as always but I finally recognized it as under threat and so became an activist, a feminist. Um, I think that's such a typical story that we come into feminism through reproductive rights frameworks, especially for white folks, and that was me. <laughs> and um, and I just remember having a great time in high school and, and, and Brooklyn being just the best place for me. And in fact, I got into Stuyvesant, which is the dream of all immigrant parents, and um, and said I didn't get into it um, so that I could go to Midwood High School in Brooklyn to be with my friends and my parents not being too involved uh, or too aware of what I was doing uh, felt terrible that I didn't get in to Stuyvesant but didn't care and didn't know that I lied so um, now thinking back to that people say my god what were you thinking you know Stuyvesant like people spend so much of their life and money and time trying, trying to get into these specialized schools and and I said, yeah, but I at least had uh, the best time in high school and got to be what I think is like an overly involved teenager, but a teenager nonetheless. And I did a bunch of other highly questionable and illegal things um, throughout high school and was this kind of kid who like did cancer research at night and dealt drugs during the day and like avoided the cops and avoided my parents oh and I and I danced pretty regularly with a with a troupe with a dance troupe until I was 18 and so um that was at like small Russian restaurants and all over Brighton Beach and it was just a really weird experience but um it, you know it gave me like a well-rounded existence from the years of 14 to 17 or whatever what part of Brooklyn did you live in? This is, uh, you know, strictly Bensonhurst, where I live now. Bensonhurst uh, and, uh, you know, would hang out in in Brighton Beach, Sheepshead Bay, you know, Flatbush. Just, um, I kept pretty insular in, in a way because my parents made me afraid of the city initially, like all parents do. And they say you shouldn't go and, you know, they like constrain movement. Um, so I actually never really went to Manhattan all that much and kind of stayed in the Russian community in Brooklyn, um, which I think delayed like my sexual <laughs> development. But um, but I um, 
came out as bisexual at 12, um, or rather, uh, because I didn't know English all that well, uh, my peers labeled me as bisexual after they saw me kiss a girl or a kiss or a girl kissed me. And they were like, oh, how could you do that? And I said, oh, how could I not? I mean, like, she kissed me. I enjoyed it. Something like that. And they were like, that means you're bi. And I was like, I don't know what that means. But what I knew was that the next day they stopped being friends with me. And so I had to go and look the word up. <laughs> and um, that didn't tell me why people would stop being mm-hmm. friends with you. So I learned the word. And I was like, okay, whatever. If that's what that is, that's what that is. But I didn't know why people disliked that so much. And so went into high school um, and joined, like, the Gay Straight Alliance and, like, took a girl to the prom and just like wanted to be really out there with my bisexual identity um uh and um and i think that if i was in union square sooner (laughs) i would have gotten you know my out and proud thing going faster um but but uh, but still what i want to say is that like there are a lot of us (laughs) that exist in immigrant communities from a very young age or whatever age um, and we're out there, like, just existing in different circles than um, usually is tagged by LGBTQ, um, you know, lives like Union Square or village, or the village, the piers. I never got to, to do a lot of that until I went to NYU. Did you ever hear about or cross paths with um, LGBT people in the Russian immigrant community? No, so weird. Of... Ask me about that later because the first time I... I made a connection between my Russian Armenian identity and being LGBTQ and organizing as those two things was this year only in my entire life. I never made a link between my immigrant status and my sexuality or my gender or my feminist politics, which is just, I mean, I just, um, it shocked me this year that I, it took me that long to like figure that out. Um, but no, and I never met, uh, a whole lot of other LGBTQ people, and I, w- my my friend group just thought it was ridiculous that I was bisexual. And one of them is like a, like a, um, you know, like a married lesbian now for many many years. So I think you know, I always joke like, how could, you know, how could you not be okay, you know? And now you're queer, and like almost all of them are now. <laughs> and I was just, I guess, maybe the first one. So, um. So when I finally did go to the city, I, it's such a cliche, and I did enter NYU as a school. I had this this great awakening and this great epiphany, and I, um, and you know, like like I met a transgender person during a retreat for you know outspoken, which is NYU's LGBTQ peer education group, and so we were we would I don't know if they still go on retreats, but we went on a retreat, and that's when people had to go around the circle and come out. And um, this person was like, "I'm a trans person. I'm a trans woman," and I was like, "What is that?" Because just like terms and words mean a lot to me, and I didn't know it. And, then someone had to whisper it to me, and I was like, oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> just found it endlessly fascinating, and I was that horrible, horrible person who would then, like, follow her around the whole time being like, you know, you must tell me everything about what this means and about gender and, like, your existence. And, and she's still my friend somehow to this day. But honestly, the patience, I think, that she had to possess. She's, an, she's older than me and also went to my high school, actually, but... But not at the time I was there. The patience that this person provided me and offered me 
um, throughout the years was immense. And she also, um, a conversation with this person led me to discover my own like trans identity a couple of years after that. So as soon as I found her endlessly fascinating, you know, and she took care to like, um, explain things to me and then um, we had an interaction um, where I was like playfully fighting with her and like touching her chest and she said like uh, you know it's a private area like don't do that because we were just friends and I was like but those aren't really breasts like they're not really breasts like my breasts are breasts and she was like no like they're my breasts and I was like okay so I remember going home and this was such a moment where I looked in the mirror and I said, okay, at the time, uh, I changed my name. So my name was Elena initially. And so I was speaking to myself in Russian anyway. So I, I, I was like, look, Elena, there is nothing that um, breasts on your body like have to do really with like what makes a woman. And so I looked and I was like, you have to like know that that's true because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. And then I was like, okay, so what makes a woman? Like having a conversation with the mirror, Elena. And then I was like, is it somebody's capacity to give birth? And I was like, none of the women in my family have a uterus any longer. So clearly it's not that. Um, is it the, the way you know, they get married <laughs> or like have kids, you know, beyond biology, just that they mother? And I was like, no, well, that can't be it because, like, there's childless women and, like, single people. <laughs> and so I was like, so, uh, you know, and along that those lines, I learned about intersex folks, too. So I couldn't really, like, tell myself it's about maleness or femaleness either. And I, like, you know, so I was like, okay, so now you don't have an answer for why you're a woman. And then it was a much more interesting shift where I was like, okay, I don't actually know if I am a woman. <laughs> because I can't answer my own question. I can't answer the, the line that I think is easy for other people to answer, which is I'm a woman because fill in the blank, you know, like plenty of people can give me thousands of reasons to put at the end of that sentence. And when I couldn't, I said, okay, well then this is, this is something you then have to think about more deeply and privately. I thought immediately again to retreat instead of seeking like let's say other folks who can teach me i retreated for about three years internally being like i'm just gonna privately talk this over with myself and see like if it's a it's a it's a real thing and you know and i was getting more and more educated and i was you know like the head peer educator for for so many years um and it really wasn't until i was i was trying to figure this time out for the interview until i was like 20 five or 26 that I publicly um, sat on a panel as a, as a part of a trans community. Um, it was a Live Out Loud panel at Judson Memorial Church where we go now for all the vigils for trans victims of homicide and transphobia. So, so that was so much more difficult of a coming out than like being bisexual or like I took up the identity of queer, of course, after learning about Judith Butler and queer theory and how many different people there are. I was like, we should all unite under the label of queer. I was that nightmare. I was somebody who thought 
that labels um, were divisive and perhaps in solidarity with other people we should all be universally queer and I swear to you there was a night we all played spoons at NYU and after that night a gay man and a trans woman and me a bisexual woman at the time decided we would all use the word queer starting the next morning and henceforth and just sort of in order to be in solidarity with one another and so for the next 10 years I used the word queer uh, and that wasn't a difficult you know shift or anything I just really resented people who maintained words like bisexual or lesbian or something attached to them and it was just the weirdest battle um, and as early I mean as late as my first year of the second graduate school the degree I'm getting right now I mean it's been seven years but it's still kind of um, embarrassing, you know, like when I took intro to queer studies here as a graduate student and um, a younger person said she's a lesbian, I was like, gosh, how archaic must it be to rely on terminology that's like so outdated? And and I feel like I probably had a crush on her that I was sort of in denial because I thought she was so cool and I thought she was so powerful. And I don't remember her name. I know she was a documentarian of the um, disappearing queer bars in New York City. And she was talking about some bar in Brooklyn that was closing or being evicted, something. And I was just like, oh, she's just so fabulous. But like, why lesbian? That's just like for old people and like I wish she re recognized the impact of queer theory <laughs> and queer politics and I just it's so embarrassing it must be told because people's identities and knowledge evolve and we have to take account of how we were ignorant and just and and you know and just because we shift our labels around doesn't mean they aren't valuable to people when they choose them it's just it's you know so when I say that I identified as bisexual and then queer and then lesbian I don't want anybody to think that's kind of like a progression we we should follow I just I just think it served its purposes based on the options that I had available to me at the time in terms of language. But I held preconceived notions that I think are harmful uh, about that. And so I teach my students that, you know, in 10 years, you'll think very differently about gender and sexuality than perhaps you do now in terms of labels and whatever. So don't, don't you know, don't um, limit what people can, can use to describe themselves and self-author themselves and, you know... Um, you know, of course, I'm hoping that I will continue to grow around this subject. Your sushi. Thank you. So you were at NYU mm -hmm. as an undergraduate. And, and, uh, and as a master's student. Oh, what was your master's? Uh, public health. Why did you go into public health? No, I was going to be a doctor, remember, as a child. And so I was pre-med at NYU and continuing to do pretty hard a hard science, quote unquote, biological research, and um, and I thought that in order to be a doctor, one should also be pretty informed in public health matters, you know, and it would be, make me more um, competitive for med school. My MCAT was average, <laughs> at best. Um, my grades were okay, and so I went into a master's program at NYU, and um, and um, that's when my dreams of med school were shattered because I learned more and more about the way healthcare is administered in this country. And I just thought, I cannot be part of this kind of 
system, one that denies intersex people the right to autonomy, one that like discriminates based on race or class. And I was going to be like the smartest doctor ever, like House MD, for sure, for sure. And, and I said, even if I have all the answers diagnostically, like people would be prevented from, a, from, from the genius of my diagnosis because they can't afford the medication. I can't be a doctor in this kind of system. Like I can't achieve greatness as a physician uh, when I'm constrained by social inequality. <laughs> okay, so... So I told my parents, just like with Stuyvesant, that I, um, that I didn't get into med school. But to, the truth is that I applied on the very last day, and I know all the pre-meds would, would, would tw- you know, tw- like really freak out right now because you can't apply on the last day of your, of your uh, med school application. That's sabotage. You, know, you should apply like clearly four years before. So, so I self-sabotaged myself, got my master's degree, um, and uh, I became a parent for the second time. And um, my partner at the time um, lost his job suddenly. And I realized that I have a skill set that is marketable. And at one point went to do adult work, you know, as a patient navigator for terminally ill cancer patients in Brooklyn at two different hospitals. And I did that work until I utterly burnt out Um, because, you know, that kind of social inequality that I learned about in an abstract way during grad school, I was able to see right before my eyes as people died because they simply could not afford, you know, the, the inordinate copay that comes with weekly shots after chemo or radiation or something, and I just cried every day. And <laughs> and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I burnt out. And that's how I applied for a PhD program in sociology and got accepted and shifted gears um, to become a professor so that I can interrupt um, people's development at, uh, at an earlier stage than my own, kind of. And no matter the career path they take, inform them of like what they can expect realistically uh, and how to change the world, of course. Why else would we be professors? <laughs> when you started at in graduate school mm-hmm. here at CUNY, mm-hmm. uh, so you would come out as trans before then? That's right. Just a little bit before. And one part of my social transition um, was changing my name from Elena to Simone. And I uh, named myself after Simone de Beauvoir because that's how arrogant I am. And the second sex changed my life. And I feel like I'm such a trope there too, but... That's the truth of it. So I changed my name. uh, And interestingly, people still say, why would you choose a girl's name if you're non-binary? Shouldn't you pick something like Alex or, you know, Jamie, (laughs) something gender neutral? And and I said, well, because it didn't matter what the gender of the name was, but what the ideas of the person that, that, you know, I named myself after are about. And, and you know, I thought she was pretty fabulous at the time. So... Uh, right before entering grad school, I changed my name because I said if I'm going to publish, and I've published before the scientific research that I did, the bio, the biology research. Um, I said, but if I'm going to publish about what I want to do work around, I want you know I want the name changed, and I changed my first and last name, um, you know, to to have a new name, I guess, and then that was part of my sort of gender transition. How did you settle on your last name? 
I well, my initial last name was uh, Armenian, Irapitan, and because of the climate that we lived in, my parents divorced and changed our last name to my mother's, which was Kalichkina. So um, it was actually Kolishkina. Uh, in Russia, but as immigrants come here, the uh, authorities d decide to misspell their names in any number of ways, and so they changed it to a ch in the middle of the root of the of the last name. So in in changing my name to Kolish, I took the root back, the root of what my mother's last name was actually, um, and, and just took off the ina because um, people have trouble pronouncing it, and I understood fully the reasons not to not to de-russify my name, but just to establish a name of my own, and I just wanted the root of it, like the radical of it, yeah. What were your relationships with, what were your relationships like with trans communities yeah, in New so, York when you started graduate school? So it's strange to come out at a panel on trans identities, um, but no one really knew. They thought I was already in the know. Uh, and so what it required was a, was a slight shift from my sort of queer organizing to see if I can like um, do trans-specific work because, as you know, LGBTQ organizing often erases trans people from their agenda and from their work. And so you have to be more concrete in searching for you know organizations or people that that you know service or work with trans people so i think i did that more academically like when creating my path here in 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 the graduate school you know in in demanding information and in demanding how to how to Im improve my research or any of my classes that i took i would demand that kind of knowledge around so it was academic <coughs> in a sense that I wanted to to locate myself uh, in the literature and in theorizing uh, and so that that exposed me to the field of trans studies um, and then I started to look for icons you know of trans activism I guess or when I started developing simple courses in women's studies or LGBTQ studies I was I went and, and searched for people that are, I guess, in the mainstream eye, and then for people who are not <laughs> in the mainstream eye. And, and so sort of, but sort of what I did with my gender journey was parent uh, in an entirely new way in the eyes of my mother or my community, which is that um, as soon as I realized this truth about myself, I shifted gears in my parenting to not gender my children in any way. And I was already kind of questionable about that with my first son, which I had in, a, in my first marriage um, during college. Uh, but I wasn't strong enough to resist my, my cultural upbringing or my mother's um, talons, her gender talons in my son. Um, but by the time I had my second child and a second husband, uh, I said that there will be no more gendering of children and I will retroactively degender the previous child or allow for his expression to be as full and varied as possible because I think she already got some some of her you know ideas into his head uh, and this middle child continued to be like wonderfully gender non-conforming um, you know sort of making those decisions uh, on her own um, but at the time this child you know according to other people was a boy and so it's 
it's interesting that the stronger and more certain I got and, and got rooted into the trans community or, or organizing or even learning about it, um, the freer I became in my parenting and the more gender nonconforming my children became. Um, so much so that at some point, a couple years back at the Transgender Health Conference, which I recommend everyone attend uh, if possible, uh, you know, my child came back from the gender um, camp for kids, the you know gender-free camp, whatever, gender, uh, just the camp for kids at the Trans Health Conference and said that she's a girl. And I said, really? I said, that's interesting. I always thought you would be like a non-binary person sort of like myself or like a, I thought that for all my kids, you know, I, I didn't think, you know, she'd really like pick uh, something. Uh, but, uh, I mean, as soon as she said, it, I was like, that's cool. Like, do you need, <laughs> I just remember being like, do you need me to get you different clothes? Cause like they already had like different kinds of clothes, clothes for different genders available to them. So I didn't think I needed to like change her wardrobe or whatever, but I was like, but just in case, since, you know, like, since I never really bought things that are pink or frilly all that much, you know, that's just because of my own aesthetic. Um, I said, do you need something to be the girl that you are? I said, but just also you should know that um, girls can be anything that girls are. So like you don't have to have a certain kind of hair. You don't have to have a certain, you know, whatever. And I never cut my kids hair anyway, uh, regardless of what gender um, they identify as. So, so that didn't change. And she was like, I don't know, maybe buy me some dresses like that are not costumes and like that are maybe this kind of color or whatever. And so we went to children's place and and um, I relied on my network of like queer and trans folks, just emailed everyone out and was like, Ark is a girl and um, I need money because I'm poor. And if you can just give like 10, 15 bucks so that I can like, you know, allow her to figure out like how she wants to look, that'd be great. And I have a good network of queer family, like queer kinship to rely on. And there was a tremendous outpouring, I think, in my direction. Um, of just a few people, but everybody was like really invested in just sort of helping my child figure out their 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 identity, and so it's sort of been like that for a couple of years. And I just reached out to Sophie LaBelle, who's um, Ark's favorite uh, trans author of children's books, and reminded Sophie, who's facing constant harassment and death threats globally, that. She met Ark a couple years back, and she's still Ark's favorite author, and that um, there is a special connection that exists in time between her remaining strong and her remaining here and my child remaining happier because she's here. And Sophie just found it on Facebook and was like, that's really sweet. And, you know, so, um, so it was through my children that I both was seen as a gender because they didn't learn gender too too much until preschool or whatever they would give me moments <clears throat> of recognition as a non-binary person because they wouldn't you know really make any assumptions about me as a person uh and of course when they would go to school they'd learn and they'd be like mommy you're a girl and i'd be like mommy's not a girl people that are talking to you about this don't really understand gender and they they need to be re-educated but um we know better here in this house you know and and um you know it's not just girls and boys anyway it's like a lot of different kinds of people and genders so uh through parenting i was able to get the satisfaction of being seen 
add the satisfaction of, uh, you know, encouraging my children on their journey. And the oldest then, you know, in response to, I think, harassment and whatever, cut his hair. And then my middle child, um, the girl, didn't cut her hair. And then the third one, who's four, um, as a result of him being my third, in a sense, he's the most confident of them all to in resisting. Um, and in a very, very kind of... Um, neutral way just not aggressively or anything he'll just kind of tell his peers at preschool like if they say oh you shouldn't have nail polish on he'll be like but i like it and i think it's very disarming to to just hear that because it's true <laughs> and you don't have to get into it it's because he likes it and like that's what gender is it's because you like it that you feel the things you feel and wear the stuff you want and get the changes you need because you like it and i don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that um to be affirmed that's it <laughs> tell me about how trans studies has changed during your time in uh doing yeah i would trans i would credit um julia serrano's whipping girl the book with um whipping me into shape about my internalized sexism uh, she was, she's the first author I think of when, when I think of trans studies and then goes, you know, Susan Stryker and Paisley Cora and like, you know, a lot of other people. Um, but I learned of the term, um, trans misogyny and, um, and Moya Bailey's term for misogynoir, uh, affecting women that are black and, and just trans misogynoir, you know, like what affects trans women that are black to understand who are the most impacted members of our community as trans people but I remember thinking that for the longest time I held ideas about femininity um, that were deeply harmful and that I was one of those girls growing up that said I'm not like other girls and reading Julia Serrano's work about how uh, femininity, no matter who embodies it, is devalued just universally, helped me um, shift gears in, internally and see that everything that's tagged feminine is actually quite radical of um, an embodiment to take up and and shift my politics. So, so trans studies begins with me recognizing that um, no matter where you look, masculinity is truly privileged in queer communities too, and that like that it takes some time to realize that it's more radical in a way to be a queer femme identified person than it is to be a, a more I guess butch identified person. I really dislike the language uh, as well, but it exists and it gets circulated, uh, and we have to deconstruct it. So. Um, then, of course, I read all of the more personal accounts, you know, like Leslie Feinberg and Pat Calipia and just like a, a lot of, uh, of my students' um, words about their lives, you know, because I started asking them to journal, you know, kind of like what an archive does, but to journal slowly throughout the semester to learn of how other trans people understand who they are. Um, and those personal accounts changed me, too, um, because I realized that there's truly a multitude of the way people can be and so i remember really there's just so many harmful elements that trans studies i think helped me um dis just sort of dis uh dispense with uh one being that i saw trans women at nyu that were 
according to me, uh, pretty gender conforming. And I remember thinking, why would she wear pearls when they are so associated with women, um, thereby reinforcing the gender binary? Like, she should have a more radical appearance or something, which uh, really smells like turf logic right now. Um, and, uh, and while it wasn't like, a biological essentialism I was nevertheless essentializing the idea of womanhood and what that looks like and now you know learning b about the violence that trans people face trans women in particular learning about the constant harassment the constant discrimination sort of the oppression of daily life I can't believe I ever thought that uh, that trans people simply choose their appearance in the first place as if they're free to be who they are. No, they're not. But even when they do, to receive criticism from someone like me or anyone else about how they chose to be on a daily basis, it just makes me embarrassed for how I, how I thought. So it, it, the multitudes of it helped me see that, um, that no one trans person's expression or gender presentation um you know is like the the end all and be all right and shouldn't and that's why I, I i value this project because we need all the narratives you know like there is an issue with a single story right and presenting a single image and whatever so that's it how has it been being a non-binary person in trans studies? You know, I think uh, in all the work that I do, I, and as confident as I am in, in, in prioritizing my needs and myself, you know, I let it go on the back burner that I should affirm myself in spaces as a non-binary person or demand, you know, correct pronoun usage or whatever. I kind of take a back seat to like making sure other people are affirmed and then if they like get the right pronouns for me, that's nice. But like, I don't expect anybody to because I'm perceived on a daily basis um, um, or quote unquote pass as a woman. So then there's two things that are ongoing all the time. One is perception and one is self-identity. I'm sure everyone can relate. <laughs> so I have to deal in the, with the world as, as, as someone that, that experienced sexism and sort of oppression because of how I'm perceived and also the erasure of my actual identity on a daily basis. Um, and both of these things really enrage me. But I think the second one, that I am non-binary, that I'm a gender, um, didn't take precedence until maybe a, this year or couple years the more I meet people who are non-binary in social media spaces or in general any spaces they inspire me to become a little louder and it would be strange to them because I'm so loud and so out there about certain things they can't really believe I'm not affirming myself um, so they're like it's okay to demand this or it's okay to 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 think these things or worry about this stuff or or, or whatever it's okay so I have one friend who's an alum of this graduate program, um, who whenever I post a photo, um, always makes sure to say, you look really a gender today. And, and I have another friend who's a bit less supportive, who always says, I just don't see it. You know, you're like really feminine. And I say, actually, uh, and you're wondering why I'm friends with this person, but anyway, uh, <laughs> um, 
work in progress, I guess. And and so I say, actually, no, I can see why you would say that because I do look like a girl, but what that other person is providing me with is like actual like authentic validation because they know who I am. And if you're if you're denying that, then you're denying me like my own identity, right? So like even if it doesn't look a gender to you, whatever photograph you're seeing, um, it's about the the person and like their truth right so you know so even if even if i know that person is just saying it to say it i still appreciate it because it's like their way of saying i love you i'm gonna cry well they also say i love you and they're you know we have other conversations in private but they were just saying that they're writing an article about uh, non-binary people's experiences and that surgical transition is not the only narrative and they were like you know i have to interview you because you didn't have medical transition um that included surgery and i said sure like of course i'm probably a good data point for that and they were like well that and also you're like a scholar of these issues so you can speak to it that way and i was like oh yeah like i can also provide a quote about what it means that we have this narrative and like these other people so it's weird a little bit to have your work and I didn't really discuss my work but like to have your work spill into like who you are and then also have to teach the same material to people who are like kind of resistant to learning about trans issues in the first place these are good tears about thinking of when you think of your friends and you cry that's that's a really positive experience tell me about linking your uh gender and sexual identity to your to my work experience to to the work no oh. to your immigrant oh life. my immigrant experience immigrant. so then suddenly last year i found a group called anti-trump soviet immigrants and it blew up from like 50 members to like now i think over 4000 i'm not sure and and i had this great love affair with it um and of course because it included you know cis men with whom i haven't interacted in so long that this was shocking you know because i really fashioned a life of just kind of queer and trans folks around me uh you know there were many divisions within that group because they they didn't want to talk queer issues or trans issues or women's issues or poor people's issues I'm not sure what they want to talk about so there were a lot of these offshoot groups and there was like the anti-misogyny group and the LGBTQ group and um, you know like the parents group and I just saw this kind of splintering again take place which of course always happens when you're trying to organize a bunch of people um, because we can't find ourselves anywhere we can't find all of our, the aspects of our identities anywhere so I found a group of people that could validate for me the experiences of trauma as a person of immigrant um, background and refugee background and like uh, why my mother is the way that she is and why she's done the things that she has so that was incredibly healing but then because I wasn't able to incorporate in a sense a lot of my kind of identity I still felt sort of fragmented and, I, and then I, I got to know some Russian LGBTQ focused organizations uh, like RUSA LGBT or USA LGBT and what their programming looks like uh, and um, you know I, I think they do work and I don't want to have much to do with it. Um, I just found myself not satisfied with the direction any sort of Russian immigrant group takes in their queer politics um, and I, I think that was very clear to me what they wanted to have 
folks who are at risk uh, for deportation, undocumented people come and speak with the NYPD in order to discuss our relations. Um, and I just was uh, asked if I would be in attendance, you know, to speak to NYPD or to translate for the people who only speak Russian. And, and I thought to myself, you expect me to sit with a with a marginalized person um, in front of NYPD and talk at a table as if there are, there's a level playing field or, or an exchange that can take place that's like offensive to me and my politics. And that was the last time I sort of um, wanted to engage with that group. But when they put on the Pride Parade on Brighton, this year is the second year, and I didn't go last year because it rained and I was apprehensive, but I did blame the rain. Um, this year, if it doesn't rain and all the kids can go, I am going to the Pride Parade on Brighton Beach because I think that my showing up with the kids that I have and my black lesbian lover uh, will make those people so pissed off at our existence and I'll be able to curse them out in Russian. And I think there's something valuable in placing yourself in spaces that want you gone and want you dead and want you exterminated and to say actually I speak your language and know your culture and I also speak the language and the culture of this country um, and all the nuances that you know that come with with living sort of multiple multiple spaces right um, so it's still a work in progress linking my immigrant identity you know, it's easier to to see it when I think about other people. You know, it's easier to see the the relationship between one's citizenship status and, and the violence they experience or the, the precarity of their life or just what's happening structurally. But it's it's nothing it's not as easy for me to reflect on it in my own life, which I think is weird because I've reflected on so many other um, components of my identity. I, I just kind of always think, oh, I have nothing to say about the immigrant journey and then but when I really think about it I have a lot to say and and it connects me to so many other people and you know whenever refugee crises come into consideration again I remember that I too ran in that fashion you know like on on lifeboats on trying to get from one place to another and and because we had money we could and other people got killed and and that uh, and that actually helped me uh, think about complex PTSD, which is uh, which is something that people people have as a result of childhood experiences like like this kind of trauma and whatever trauma my mother sort of threw my way. Um, so in linking my gender and sexuality and immigrant identity, I was able to uh, start a uh, start because I'm not through with it yet. Thinking about how I exhibit. Uh, symptoms of CPTSD and so to seek you know support and help around that issue um, is new it's not I'm not new to mental health sort of options or accessing care or thinking about you know my mental illnesses but I am new to thinking that actually what happens to children when they get randomly taken from places and moved and not processed and like all these other things um, probably stays with you forever and affects like your well-being so it's time to probably think about that too so I bought a couple books you know my usual um, very academic take on things that talk about CPTSD and of course I found myself you know in a bunch of symptoms but 
again, uh, I'm not entirely reliant on the mental health infrastructure in, in figuring out who I am. So um, I'd much rather now, now after I'm no longer part of those Facebook groups because it really exhausted me and burned me out and the romance was fast and quick and we broke up, <laughs> you know, amongst ourselves. I kept a, a few close friends that are actually in this kind of therapy group with me, well, of our, of, of our own kind. Um, so whenever things come up that are about my immigrant stuff or my mom, I can go to these three people and and rant um, in a way that I can't uh, to my wife or to my best friend. Um, I mean, he's an immigrant as well, but just of, of, you know, it's a different culture and a different experience. So not the same way, although I think we, we share so many, um, you know, uh, issues because <laughs> he's also a queer person. So... We've always tried to avoid our respective parents and, and we we followed each other from, like I told you, from college to first grad school. We entered this grad school together. We have been, this is my longest and most important relationship is with another person who also found out they're gay and, you know, an immigrant. And so it's it's really, we've been friends for 16, 17 years, but only now starting to have conversations about how that connects for us. We just sort of assumed we're suffering as immigrants and pre-med students and our parents are like this because we're suffering as immigrants and pre-med students, but we didn't reflect on it structurally as sociologists until very, very recently. Um, we just always you know, thought we are on this very assimilationist, right? Like mo upward mobility kind of path. And um, and life did not work out that way at all. And uh, I'm glad it didn't. And I'm, I don't have any regrets about um, dropping out of med school or like not going in the first place um, uh, or where our lives took us, you know. Uh, and as precarious as the job market is and as unlikely it is that we'll have academic posts you know, I wouldn't trade the last sort of seven years in terms of knowledge production and what I gained out of being a graduate student for anything. Wouldn't trade it for anything. What is your research on? My research on, I'm an urbanist, as they say. Uh, I'm an urban sociologist, and I take a look at the streets of New York City um, and what takes place uh, in public spaces uh, between strangers. And uh, that's kind of vague, and it's sort of broad, and it's like that on purpose. Um, but I, I guess some of the interactions that I zero in on uh, are catcalling and LGBTQ-directed aggression. Um, and that spans a number of things from, you know, nonverbal to verbal to physical assault. Uh, and so now in, in my sort of dissertation and writing my book, um, I'm putting forth an argument that's not new, that these are instances of everyday violence that accumulate to much greater than anybody really considers in terms of impact, um, that there are lifelong consequences to being harassed across different spheres, and that we do take we do we do need to take a look at the at the public sphere and what takes place there. But then also in in my work I connect it um, just like you did in this interview to the life course, but to how people feel about experiencing violence at home, in the workplace, in their educational environments and the public sphere simultaneously. Um, and so I, I, one of the more trendier aspects of my work is that I interview men that harass me. Um, not 
uh, as recently, but I think when uh, when I had the energy for it at the beginning of my graduate career, um, I was able to do that work. I'm no longer able to do that work, um, and so I shifted gears to focus on the people that are recipients of this kind of harassment. Um, and after interviewing about 67 of them, I burnt out on the trauma that came pouring out into the room that, of course, um, you know, spills into my own. Um, but I still wouldn't trade that for anything to hear 67 people, most of whom are queer and trans, talk about their entire lives from start to finish and trust me with info, you know how it feels. I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I started as a pure pure ethnographer and a sociologist, and now I'm sort of saying that I built an oral history of folks' lives um, that is valuable. And I can't give it to your archive or to the Lesbian Herstory archives or anything because I promise no one would see except for me or transcribe except for me, you know. But... Uh, Again, I privately sit, I think, with a lot of people's stories that I always remember. I have like a, an interesting memory. I can, I can photographically remember my transcriptions and I can remember their stories. And, and um, I'm going to cry again, but it's happy tears. It's good to uh, walk with others. It's good to stand on the shoulders of other people. It's at some point I had an epiphany that I'm rooted in a history. Like we all enter it at different points, but together we make something that's like, that can't be erased. And my story impacts theirs, you know, and they impact mine. And and teaching that to students is really tremendous too. And so, so in in a sense, my work isn't as important academically. It's important to to just pay witness to how people come to live, <laughs> you know, as queer people. So I think your work is really important. I don't, and I, you know, I just think it's tremendous to write our stories down because um, the dominant narrative is of erasure and of extermination. And so I think it's very radical to, uh, to remember. And I wanted, and I remember talking to Jay so much who changed you know, so much in my life, this very prominent activist, you know, who put together the first dyke march here in New York and, you know, transcribing his story probably took, I don't know, like a good month. Uh, I have like 77 pages, like I said, of wow. single space transcription of his story of the city of New York and LGBTQ politics here from when he showed up here and, you know, was perceived uh, as a lesbian woman for, for many years until he was finally able to transition to get, you know, to get that entire life course um, written down. 
and to learn from 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 that and and to to have someone remind us that the tensions we have in our communities have always been present <laughs> that nothing is new that stuff around biphobia and transphobia and the way lesbians have treated folks and gay men have treated folks isn't new and not an invention of tumblr and is not an invention of the internet and just that that being at risk and being targeted is an ongoing process and i just always think of his 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 story and i think of coretta king <laughs> in tandem who always said that i'm paraphrasing coretta king here so who always said that every generation needs to fight this sort of the same fight every generation needs to wake up and, and fight the fight for for like equality and against injustice in in their time and I just think, you know, he he died so soon, too soon, <laughs> um, and was so tireless in his work and his activism until his very last day that, um, you know, that I always want, that we always talked about how when he passes, sort of his experience and his consciousness would seep into the universe, but it would continue on through me and through so many other people that that he's touched, right, and one day when I grow up, I swear, I'll publish um, his, mem his, his memoir, you know, his whole yeah. life that, that I asked him about. But I just, um, I'm keeping it to myself kind of for now. Um, I mean, I'll include a couple of quotes here and there in my, in my work, but I think it deserves its own, um, its own book. Um, but yeah, so my work became intensely personal at some point and just kind of joined with my development, my gender and sexual development and, you know, my understanding of anti-racism and uh, my Marxism. Just um, it's hard to do that kind of work, I think, to to be a marginalized person and to do work on marginalized people and to teach on marginalized topics it becomes really exhausting um but uh but again i think there's much to celebrate thank you thank you is there anything else that you'd like to add well no i think that's a terrible question to ask me but i i do want to add that um because of how valuable queer kinship is that i can be many young people's mom um when they get abandoned by their own parents in in every sense of that word so email me or you know <laughs> just whichever way you want to get in touch um while there are not a lot of material resources i can offer i probably will never judge you for a single thing you do <laughs> or a way you want to live you know and i think that can probably keep a lot of more of us alive so I swear I don't usually cry this much but I think that's an important message to younger younger folks who are just like teens or coming into college or something to just know that people are out there who could just be like hey like first of all it's awesome to be gay like now that I identify as a lesbian more thoroughly like i think it's amazing <laughs> i highly recommend it i think it's awesome to be trans and i think it's awesome to be non-binary i think it's amazing to know that you can fashion your life based on the truth that you feel inside i think it's it's not grim 
only to be targeted and whatever. I think we're sexier. <laughs> I think we're f fabulous. Like, I think being queer is a blessing. I'm so happy that my children may be queer or trans. So happy to have children who can recognize me and I can recognize them. I think it's amazing to teach your kids to, to be queer. You know, if Sedgwick once wrote, like, how to raise your kids to be gay and everyone thought it was a very radical piece, you know, and and that you can't simply teach how how to be gay or how to be trans because it's not you know it's something you're born with but i but i disagree i think it's not true i think you can definitely spread the gay and trans agenda <laughs> just by providing uh, more options and and sort of validation and support and so so um so to the young folks i think it's awesome to be the way that you are right now <laughs> and i think that you know, I think you'll come to learn that too, uh, hopefully, um, and look back and say that you you knew so much more about the world as a result of being who you are. So that's my last words. That's beautiful. Okay, thank you.